A new United Nations report warns the impacts of climate change are increasing and inevitable. Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Temperatures in the Arctic have warmed about two to three times the global average. It will be very difficult, not impossible, for our children to control climate change. This is South of Two Degrees, and I am your host, Brian Barnes. It is so good to have you with us today on the only podcast dedicated to bringing unfiltered scientific research to the forefront of the climate conversation. We've got a really interesting show today, so my friends, once more, into the fray. Welcome back. It's great to have you join me again, and thanks for all the great emails and feedback as of late. We absolutely love hearing from you at South of Two Degrees, and know you can always reach out via any of our social media outlets, the website, or directly at podcasts at southoftwodegrees.org. Speaking of the website, be sure to pop over to the blog if you have a moment, as there is a new post on the Great Barrier Reef I'm pretty sure you'll like. Okay, so on to today's show as it's packed and today is all about fire. With the fires in Australia at the end of last year, the California fires this fall, and the current fires in Colorado, it seemed appropriate to have a conversation centered around them. Now, I know we've chatted about the first two already, but I guarantee you, unless you are a fire ecologist, then you'll learn something today that'll make you go, hmm... And no, I'm not breaking out with the little CNC music factory. If you're under 30, just roll with me. It's a song that came out back in, what, 1991? Anyway, back to the fires. You may be thinking, we're diving into the Colorado fires today. But I'm sure this would be the first time in your life because you'd be wrong. Today, we are going to be looking at boreal carbon emissions from wildfires, fire models, how we forecast fire weather, fire mitigation practices, and finally, how the boreal forest will change yet persist in spite of the anthropogenic forcings we have thrown at it. So with that, let's begin today with the lay of the land. When you look at the subarctic northern reaches of North America, it is covered in a far from insignificant part of what is considered the world's largest biome next to only the ocean. And that is the boreal forest or the taiga. And while it covers large swaths of land, there are other biomes of significance. In fact, Canada is made up of 20 ecoregions, 15 of which are terrestrial, 5 of which are maritime. The partial focus today is on 6 of those ecoregions as they are the ones studied in today's paper, which is titled Fuel Availability, Not Fire Weather, Controls Boreal Wildfire Severity and Carbon Emissions, and was published the 12th of October, 2020. The six ecoregions it focused on were as follows. The Alaska Boreal Interior, the Boreal Cordillera, the Taiga Plain, the Taiga Shield, the Boreal Plain, and the Softwood Shield. Now, just so we're clear, while I'm sure you all know what plains are, Cordilleras are mountainous biomes and shields are plains dominated by rocky outcroppings left from the last ice age. Now, the reason the authors chose these specific ecoregions is they are prone to fires and are thus great for studying the underlying conditions that give rise to increasingly larger fires in our world of anthropogenic climate change. Within those regions, they studied 417 different sites, and the data they gathered may just change fire forecasting far into the future. Now, these areas are dominated by two types of trees that we will look into today. Those are the black spruce, and the jack pine. And before we dive into that though, we're going to take a side trip and get a basic lesson on fire forecasting so we can understand the groundbreaking work these authors accomplished. 
As you may remember from way back in the beginnings of the South of Two Degrees podcast, when we looked at the 2019-2020 bushfires in Australia, we chatted extensively about DGVMs, or Dynamic Global Vegetation Models, and the Fire Weather Index. For anyone that listened to that show, you already know enough about DGVMs, so we aren't going to spend any time there. And if you need a refresher, feel free to go back and have a listen. It was a great show. As for the Fire Weather Index, we're going to dive a little further into that today than we have previously. Now, the Canadian Fire Weather Index System was developed in the 1970s, is widely used to predict fire activity and carbon emissions, and because of its simplicity, it has grown to be used the world over. It's simple because it uses only four main observations that feed into three moisture codes, which in turn are used to create two behavioral indices that combine to give you a fire weather forecast. To simplify, think of 4321 fire. Now, the four observations are temperature, relative humidity, wind, and rain. These are combined in various ways to come up with the drought code, which has a 53-day lag, the duff moisture code, which has a 15-day lag, and the fine fuel moisture code, which has a 5-16 to hour lag. The first two codes are combined to determine the buildup index. This is simply a way of describing the relative dryness and amount of surface fuels. On the other side, the fine fuel moisture code is combined with the wind to determine the initial spread index. These two are then combined to get the potential fire threat. Now, I know that's a lot, but with 4321, you can easily remember weather, moisture, behavior, and fire. Oh, and now when you drive into a forest to go camping and you see that sign with Smokey the Bear stating the fire danger for today is yellow, you know where they came up with it. Now, as you think about this funnel, it's pretty obvious that this is a top-down approach for forecasting, which at first glance makes sense, right? I mean, you're talking about the rain, how dry it's been, and if there's a lot of twigs, branches, old trees, and leaves lying around on the ground. Seems like they nailed it, right? Well, According to the authors of today's paper, it may actually miss the mark. In boreal forests, especially those covered in black spruce, they tend to have deep organic soils. You see, black spruce do exceedingly well in wet, boggy areas. In these areas, deep amorphous soil forms that tends to be both porous and fibrous with an increased carbon content as you go deeper towards the mineral soil boundary. What does this have to do with the fire index? Well, for that, let's look at the hypothesis of our main paper today. Quote, We expected that as forests aged, fuels available for combustion would accumulate and black spruce trees would increase in proportion relative to other tree species. We also hypothesized that moisture class, based on topography, controlled drainage, and adjusted for soil texture and presence of permafrost, would impact carbon combustion through its effect on fuel availability. Specifically, we expected that wet sites would have greater below-ground carbon pools due to deep organic soils but lower above ground carbon pools through the presence of less productive black spruce compared with the jack pine or deciduous broadleaf species. We also hypothesized that carbon combustion would be impacted by top-down controls of severe fire weather and late season drying of deep organic soil layers and coarse woody debris, end quote. Okay, Brian, I get that, but I need you to tie it together for me, you say. And to that, I'll answer as briefly as possible. As we humans have caused the planet to warm, surprise, surprise, 
It has a drying effect on the land, which puts more water vapor in the air. When these deep carbon pools dry even a little, they set the stage for truly catastrophic fires. In fact, across the 417 sites and six ecoregions studied, the carbon combustion wasn't significantly different. However, the majority of that carbon combustion came from organic soil, not from dry debris on the surface as you may expect. Once this realization is made, the top-down approach to the fire weather index gets called into question. In fact, the study found, quote, In all ecoregions, the variance in carbon combustion associated with top-down variables of fire weather was not significant. In contrast, bottom-up variables were always significant, and the shared variance between top-down and bottom-up variables was consistently much less than bottom-up alone, end quote. Now again, I know I nerd out on this stuff, but I was amazed with the paper's results that showed across all the regions, the amount of below-ground carbon combusted as compared to both the above-ground debris as well as the below-ground organic soil was 85-94%. to 94%. You get that? Upwards of 94% of all the carbon released in a fire in the taiga came from organic soil. This should tell you two things. Firstly, that the amount of carbon that is stored in the soil, something I will hammer home over and over, is massively significant. Hashtag soil matters. Secondly, you should pick up that our current process for addressing fires is all wrong. So I'm sure that last comment leaves you asking, so what's the most effective method of preventing the mass destruction of forest fires? To that, let's scrutinize the states for a minute and look back at the history of the Forest Service. You see, since the founding of the agency through the first half of the 20th century, wildfires were not looked upon as playing a positive ecological role. Wrapped in a desire to save lumber, game, and watersheds, a policy of putting out the fire as quickly as possible was adopted. Scientists in the 1940s started to see the fallacy of that approach, but it wasn't until the 1970s that controlled burns became part of the process. However, because most citizens dislike smoky air, something we in many parts of the world have had to grow accustomed to as of late anyway, and logging companies started lobbying hard with an all-fires-are-bad mentality, coupled with the fear of litigation if public land burns spilled into private property. So despite the recommendation of prescribed burns, there was a real reluctance. As fires burned based on increased ground clutter, two things occurred. First and foremost, it allowed fires to jump into the canopy. This is the type of fire that is devastating to a forest as it burns the entirety of it, not just the underbrush. The second is that the models were developed based off of our observations, giving rise to estimating fire indexes from a top-down approach. You see many trees from the majestic sequoia and redwoods to our tree of choice today, the black spruce, have developed to make use of fires. Black spruce typically release their pine cones slowly, yet after a fire they drop pretty much everything they have to make use of the nutrient-rich soil. However, before the climate critics jump in, they did not evolve to these types of fires. Rather, they evolved to the small natural ones that burned much less intensely and weren't driven by poor policy by both forest management and emissions regulations. The problem is, because of humanity's constant attempts to change natural systems, these fires become more intense and instead of just burning out underbrush, they burn large swaths of the entire taiga. So what happens when our slow-growing black spruce gets burned up? Well, another conifer 
that jack pine, as well as some deciduous varieties, start to take over. The jack pine does not retain the ground moisture that the black spruce does, and as such has shallower organic soil. Because the landscape is drier, it's prone to more frequent fires. This in turn causes problems as while the black spruce will usually replace the jack pine given a span of 80 to 150 years, the climate-induced weather coupled with a more flammable biome means the black spruce cannot overtake the jack pine. While I'm by no means trying to make the jack pine out to be the bad guy here, it works as a force amplifier. As we have covered ad nauseum, the warmer the planet becomes, the more likely fires are to occur. When the fires are more frequent, there is less time for the biome to heal back to its original form. And when there is less temporal spacing between fire events, the black spruce doesn't recover, which is, as noted by the findings of this paper, consistent with reduced carbon stored in the soil. So let's put this all together now. According to the paper, the strongest predictor of carbon combustion across all ecoregions was below-ground carbon pools, which were always greatest in poorly drained landscapes, and the carbon combustion generally increased with the presence of black spruce. Further, the fire weather index system components aren't capturing the smoldering of deep organic soils that can take place for weeks to months after a fire sweeps through an area and contributes significantly to carbon emissions. This means that the models used in boreal forests and more research should be done to validate other forest biomes. I personally would love to see a similar study conducted in the Amazon, but I digress. But the models in the boreal forests that don't take into account bottom-up drivers in favor of relying solely on top-down approaches will fail to capture the complexities of wildfire carbon combustion both specifically and temporally. As the authors note, we must then start to consider how environmental changes will, quote, affect the bottom-up controls on carbon combustion through altered patterns of fuel availability, climate warming and drying of boreal forests in association with changes to the fire regime can alter successional trajectories, and a switch from black spruce to deciduous or jack pine dominance could decrease carbon combustion from fires as a result of lower fuel accumulation. As the climate continues to warm, permafrost degradation and drying of soils could act to increase the below-ground carbon pools available for combustion. However, if fires continue to increase in frequency, these organic soils are unlikely to reaccumulate in the between-fire interval and therefore would reduce combustion. End quote. So while that summarizes nicely what we discussed today, how should I put it succinctly? I think the best thing to say is simply, what we do matters. We can't continue to mess with Mother Nature and expect all to be fine. I'm sure the climate deniers out there will yell, See, I've been telling you it's forest management and all those damn tree huggers that caused this. Sadly, they can't see the forest through the trees. Poor practices have exacerbated things, but it is anthropogenic climate change that has given rise to the catastrophic fires by as much as 30% in the prolonged fire seasons that we are seeing with increased frequency. The good news, though, is regardless of if you're an activist or a denier, we both agree something needs to be done. And either point, if addressed properly, will give rise to positive benefits. 
And that wraps up another episode of South of Two Degrees. I hope you learned something from today's show. And as always, I look forward to having you back again with me next week. Oh, and aside from checking out all the latest information on our website, blog, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, do this for me. Tell one other person about this show in the next week. Have at least one conversation about climate change with someone else. And above all, keep it south of two degrees.